Hello everyone, and welcome to the fourth episode of the Leider Security and Global Affairs podcast. I am your host, Jake, and we have for you today a different episode, a two-parter, in fact. An episode that focuses on learning Arabic as a foreign language, the challenges of learning languages through immersion, as well as many useful tips for anyone looking to start an Arabic adventure of their own. The first part will be a roundtable discussion between two Arabic learners in the Ischa team, based on the contents of Vanessa Newby's new book, Follow the Arabic Road. The second part will consist of an interview with Hossam Ahmed, a lecturer at Leida University Institute for Area Studies, who also coordinates the Arabic language courses available through Leida as well. The timestamp for the second part will appear in the description of this episode. Without further ado, please enjoy the first part. So I have with me today Vanessa Newby. Hi, Jake. And also James Shires. Hi, it's great to be here. So, Vanessa, getting to your book, why did you decide to publish this book now? What was the cause behind that? Um, well, I realised that the time I spent in the Middle East is a time that's not about to come back. Uh, so I really captured a moment in time I felt that I've not read much about, at least from the perspective of a foreigner travelling to the region on a quest to learn Arabic. Um, I also wanted to describe the region for those people who might want to know about it but aren't able to go themselves. Um, so it's for people who want to get a perspective on the region from a traveller's point of view and a view that captures a moment in time, the cusp of the Arab Spring. And I wanted people to know what life was really like there before the wars, at least, uh, that descended uh, after, the, after the spring. And as it turned out now, almost all the countries in the book that I visited, which were Iran, Yemen, Syria and Lebanon, so it's, with the exception of Jordan, are actually very difficult to visit right now. So I think my book's a contribution at this particular moment in time. Yeah, to give us a bit of a flashback to not only the region before then, but also before COVID, right? Before um, this whole, um, yeah, travelling became a, a luxury, an extreme luxury. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing is that people really are finding it hard to travel in general. So I was hoping, you know, I felt that, yeah, it was an opportune time to actually share some experiences of the of the region. Live vicariously. <laughs> yes, yeah, through exactly. The book. Yeah. And I must say that the picture you've painted, um, especially of um, Iran and Tehran, I was really enchanted by that, I would say. I right. had to actually edit that a lot because I fell totally in love with Iran. Um, it's just a fantastic country. And I think I had about another 20,000 words on that uh, that I had to cull just to capture it without it sounding like a love letter to, to the nation and the country. It was, uh, it's a very surprising place. Um, and I, presumably that was something that, that there were things you read that surprised you. Very much so, yeah. Um, uh, immediately after I read that chapter, I talked to my partner. I said, "What if we went to Tehran when this is all over? Like, you know, the travel bans now um, uh, removed thanks to well, with Biden, right?" Um, so I thought, you know, what, what if we spent like a few days in Tehran? <laughs> so yeah, um, I suppose that's to stop it from being uh, the book being called "Follow the Farsi Road." Then I guess. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean, Iran obviously was a bit of a detour, but it was such a fascinating place. That I felt I couldn't leave it out of the story, and it is. The story is a linear story. So obviously it starts with me in Syria and then 
I take my first steps around Syria itself, and then I go into uh, go down to Jordan, a neighboring state. I actually went to Lebanon before I went to Iran, but for the purposes of the narrative, it was just easier to kind of track it that way because I spent several visits uh, in Lebanon because in those days you could just grab a taxi and go over the border in, in three hours. So then then there was Iran, and then, of course, there was Yemen. So And then I... I, Levin, the Lebanon chapter was the hardest chapter to write because that's the country I've probably lived in the most. Really? Uh, yeah, I've lived there for about four or five years overall. Oh, my goodness. So. Oh, I didn't realise this. So, wow. Well, yeah, you wouldn't know it from the book, actually. That was the hardest chapter because I had to not infuse it too much with what I learned pr- after, you know, after that first year. I wanted to capture that moment in time, so I had to kind of keep that separate. So maybe there's another yeah. book later about, about Lebanon coming. Right, of course. So if you had Lebanon there first, you'd be like, well, I know this country, I know all the regions, etc. And then it seems, I guess, a bit of a disconnect between the rest of the chapters. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, because my experiences of all those other states occurred at that time and I didn't return, Mm. uh, mainly because of war, tragically. Um, But Lebanon, I did keep going back. So yeah, my initial knowledge became infused and and then reinforced with pre- with additional experience. But I, I, I think I managed to keep that back when I wrote it, but it was definitely the hardest part to write. I mean, my memories of the first visit were very vivid, but after that, yeah, I had to kind of say, oh, shall I say that? No, because I, I learned that later and that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to have a non-Lilia story, I suppose. Yeah. Well, for the narrative, yeah, you have to kind of keep it moving, like you said, and, 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 and it might get a bit weird if you suddenly kind of jump in with later on. and Yeah. Oh, fair enough, fair enough. Um, oh, but this is, of course, um, predicated on the question, um, why did you learn Arabic in the first place? Well, for me, and I say this in the book, obviously, I always wanted to be fluent in another language because, as I said in the book, frankly, it looked cool. Um, I have the curse of being a native English speaker. As do I. <laughs> as we all do, yes. And um, that means everywhere you go in the world, uh, you can usually find someone who speaks English. Um, and I had always felt sort of deeply ashamed of that. And I'd learned, well, tried to learn French at school and really hadn't applied myself. And, you know, we li- we're here in Europe, right? We're here in the Netherlands where everybody that I meet seems to speak at least one language, if not two or three, effortlessly. Many, many, yeah. It's humiliating, right, James? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so for me, that was a big part of it, actually. The idea of being able to engage people in light conversation in Arabic seemed like a, a dream. But there are other reasons as well. I mean, and I'm really interested to hear James's view on this because talking, a lot of stuff you read on the Middle East, especially in international relations, which is my discipline, tends to uh, be very abstract and very political and strategic. And you don't hear much about the people. Hmm. Um, And so my first response when I was reading material in international relations, which is can be, let's face it, quite dry. Yes, indeed. Um, Confirmed. <laughs> yes, <laughs> especially the theory. And I'm sort of like, where are the people in all this? You know, and what do they think of the politics of the region? And so that was another thing. You know, language gets you into the heart of a culture in a way that that, that no amount of reading in your own language will do. Um, so that was my, my multiple motivations. What about you, James? So I would completely second that. I think uh, really trying to 
understand the language and being able to communicate uh, with people changes your perspective on a region or a country completely. Uh, for me, it was actually a uh, doubly abstract uh, introduction uh, to the region because I was not only studying international relations, uh, but also the international relations of cybersecurity. Mm. And that's what my research looks at is cybersecurity issues in the Middle East, um, especially in the Gulf states uh, and Egypt as well. And cybersecurity, you know, digital threat, things like that, they not only seem abstract, but they often very are abstract. Yes. So, you know, you're dealing with code on computers and network incidents and things like that, that, to be honest, you don't really need to talk to anyone very much. And a lot of <laughs> cybersecurity professionals might seem like they don't spend much time talking to people. Um, but, you know, uh, that's, a, that's a podcast for another time. Uh, anyway, so I was studying all these cybersecurity issues, but trying to connect them to the international relations of the region. And on both sides, it was exactly the same feeling as Vanessa. It was saying, well, where are the people? You know, there's a lot of technical issues here, but actually cybersecurity issues are just as much social as technical. And you really have to know people, know how people think about the phones and devices they're using to really understand what the threats and risks that they face are. And this is really what I wanted to do, um, especially now in a post-pandemic world, this is more important than ever, right? So we're all using our devices all the time. You might uh, be listening to this on a device that you spend maybe most of your waking hours on. So, you know, understanding how people interact with their devices was really important for me. And I just wanted to be able to do my research, to talk to people, to read all the um, relevant stuff in the right languages, in the language that people were using day to day. And so that was my first motivation, both from the IR perspective, but also in terms of cybersecurity. Interesting. So would you both say that perhaps learning their um, the language which they think in, they communicate with primarily, um, provides a more perhaps authentic and therefore more accurate um, experience? Perhaps we can really solidify the, um, the practices of cybersecurity and international relations through that? I think certainly uh, you have a maybe quite a strong divide between some international relations perspectives where they would apply structural theories, apply everywhere around the world, right? And they wouldn't say you need to know local cultures or interact with people or uh, specific languages. And then there's a different area of the university that does area studies, right? Yeah. And they would disagree with that fundamentally. They would yes. say, no, you need to live in a place, you need to know the people, you need to know the language and the culture in order to be able to study it. Right? And there's always been this tension between outsiders going in and studying. And I don't want to uh, overplay that, right? Especially in the Middle East, in the Arabic world, there is a long history of people learning uh, languages, learning cultures for very instrumental purposes, right? In order to exploit, colonize, and so on. Mm. Right? So there is a long Absolutely. history and a quite checkered history in the academia, uh, in the academic world for that. But it's more about respect. If you want to engage with people, if you are studying subjects with people from a particular region, definitely um, being able to talk to people, being engaging them uh, as far as you can uh, on a level that is comfortable to them more than you is a matter of uh, sort of academic uh, respect and good integrity as well for me. Yeah, I, again, sorry, mutual admiration club here, but I second what James says. Um, what I got asked, actually, it was quite interesting, was this, like, why are you bothering to learn Arabic if you're doing IR? So I got that from supervisory staff who predicted accurately, accurately as it turned out, would do nothing for my career uh, because they honestly uh, did not see the point of it. As you say, James, they sort of said, look, you know, this is a theoretical discipline, doesn't matter. Um, and I would meet people who were studying 
Arab, Arabic and the Arab cultures. Uh, they came from Oxford and Cambridge and these places which have a deep, long, hist enduring history, Durham, Exeter. Um, and, and, and they would have, they would be looking at completely different topics. You know, it was just, um, so it was sometimes a little bit, you know, because when, when it got hard, you'd think to yourself, yeah, why am I doing this? You know, why am I doing this to myself? And then I'd have to take myself back and remember. It's good that you mentioned hard. So you, there were certainly parts in this language journey which were hard. But to my understanding from at least an English uh, first language speaking perspective, from our perspective, lang uh, Arabic is indeed very, very difficult. Why? So there's a, there's a couple of reasons probably. One of the uh, most obvious ones is that it's in a different script. So this is maybe um, for our students or uh, people who aren't familiar with Arabic out there, in that the, the um, Arabic language doesn't use the letters that you're familiar with. If you're trying to learn French or German or Dutch, you have a base level of knowledge on how sentences are constructed, on what letters mean and what uh, combinations of letters might sound like. Right? So you have a little bit of knowledge already, even if it doesn't seem that way to you, especially if you turn up in Paris for the first time and you seem near incomprehensible. Um, I've been there as well. <laughs> so that's, that's one of the problems, right? And then the script itself means that you have to work hard to master uh, the script and the alphabet and the way to read in the different direction. Right? So rather than going from left to right, we're going from right to left. So these are all things that you have to... Um, really get over before you're engaging with the language in the same way that you would another European language. Jake, I know you do have some experience of this with other languages written in different scripts, so don't pretend you're completely novice in the woods here. No, very true. No, yes. Um, I had to deal with a, quite a few alphabets in my time. <laughs> and it, it can be, yeah, a real roadblock to begin with. I think at least um, in my experience of studying Korean, um, it's actually a really logical script. Um, Hangul is like, I would say, objectively one of the best written languages because you just... Everything that you need to read is there. There's no um, extra rules or exceptions. Well, okay, there's a little bit. There's um, always some exceptions. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you can read Hangul full script in, I would say, half a day. Like, you could start reading it. You know, no idea what it means, of course. Um, that comes with time. But, yeah, the, the reading roadblock um, is conquered quite quickly there. Yeah, as opposed to um, Arabic, I suppose. Well, that's a funny thing. So, for me, the, the script... Yes, difficult. And as I write in my book, I developed an inexplicable case of dyslexia every time <laughs> I tried to read out loud for a long time. My B's became T's, my N's became B's. I, I, you know, the significance of a dot in Arabic is, is really something. Um, and, and, and a lot of Arabs would say to me, why are you having so much trouble? It's completely phonetic because it is actually a phonetic language when you read it. So you see a bear, it's a bear. Mm. Uh, you see a, a, a ke, it's a ke. Um, but for me, even that was sort of, if you park that, that was difficult. But for me, and I think for many people, uh, first of all, it's, it's the grammar that is so deep. And so, as you say, in Korean, if you're reading a sentence, you might not have any idea what it means. Even if you've mastered the, the alphabet, if you don't have an understanding of what a noun looks like, what an adjective looks like, and of course, they use cases as well which the Germans, I believe, still have time for. Um, <laughs> and uh, you also have to, you don't just have a plural and a singular, you also have a dual in Arabic. So when you're constructing a sentence in your mind, and this is informal Arabic, mind you, although the same applies, but to a slightly lesser extent in the dialects, um, you literally have to think, okay, you know, and everything is gendered. 
like French or Spanish. So there's a number of variables that you have to calculate when you want to articulate any sentence. And for me, that is a really inhibiting factor, especially if you don't know one of the sort of European languages where you are used to uh, gender and case and, 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 and having suffixes and prefixes on your words. And that's one part. And then there's a whole other part of the dialect. <laughs> so when you arrive, and James and I were joking about this the other day, you know, you arrive and let's say you've been at university, you've been to Oxford and you've done two full years of an undergraduate degree in Arabic. You turn up and uh, you start speaking this very formal uh, Arabic called modern standard Arabic and in Arabic it's called Fusha. And everyone starts laughing at you, you know, in the street because they're like, oh, that's the language we speak in school. No, 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 no. You need to speak this. And it's called Amir and it's a, a dialect. And James will tell you about the Egyptian dialect. Certainly in the Lebanese Syrian dialect, uh, certain words, letters even get dropped. So the ka becomes an alif hamza, like a eh. So instead of saying kahwe for coffee, you say ahwe. You know, so you have to sort of also learn to drop all these letters in order to sort of fit in. But I think the worst part, and I don't know if this is what challenged you the most, James, and I'd be interested because I don't know the Egyptian dialogue very dialect very well, although my husband, who is Syrian, makes me watch endless Egyptian films, so my dialect is getting better. Um, what I found is that the basic words, the basic words in the dialect are so far from formal Arabic. And the more advanced you get with the language actually the more you see emerging of the vocabulary so the higher level you're if so if you think about language categories sort of a1 a2 b2 b up to c2 by the time you get up to b2 certainly in the syrian arabic dialect you tended to see a lot of words that were the same in formal arabic as in the dialect but if you're talking at the basic street level almost every word is different Yes, and I think Vanessa painted a, a very nice portrait of the naive Oxford student who turned up uh, thinking they'd, you know, been able to conjugate a few verbs and could probably make themselves understood, and then were confronted with uh, people who thought they'd definitely come out of the Shakespearean age or something like that, or, some, <laughs> or the equivalent. Um, so that was me. Um, <laughs> in short, uh, but Vanessa is exactly right, and uh, the difference between uh, not only a dialect and formal Arabic for her, um, but also the different dialects themselves makes uh, Arabic, you know, considered as an umbrella term, a difficult language to learn because you're effectively learning almost multiple languages. The linguists in the, in the room would get into a long conversation about what is a language and a dialect. We don't want to go there, um, but you're almost learning multiple languages. Um, and I really see this in terms of the uh, joining together of the dialects and um, the formal Arabic uh, in the Egyptian case as well. So you know, if you do watch um, Egyptian serials, especially the Ramadan series, the Musasalat, then I really recommend it. Uh, but for me, I definitely found the almost the higher class, right, characters, the um, richer, more elite people who were easier to understand. Right, because they were using this level of language that's getting towards Fusa, right? And so we're not only thinking about uh, different words, but there's also a whole sort of class structure associated with different kinds of language. In Arabic, just as there is in all other languages, right? So the kind of language you use is really influenced by your social and cultural background. Um, in Egypt, at least, you know, there are also the sound differences. You don't have the uh, qaf either, but you also have the, uh, um, the j being g, 
So that is a really uh, easy marker of um, what an Egyptian dialect is. And often they will use uh, nouns instead of verbs. So I want becomes ayes, which is I, which is I, I am wanting in a way. Uh, so they use that a lot. Uh, rather than saying you know, subject verb, you will have a noun, which is sort of uh, I am doing this thing. Right? And that's a very uh, standard sort of amir kind of thing. That's yeah, and that's the other thing with uh, the Syrian Lebanese. Not to get too technical, they have the present continuous tense that formal Arabic does not have. And uh, funnily enough, the, the word you use to insert between the, the subject and the verb is am. So, but it's ein and the meme. So it's am. So actually, it's easy to remember that it means I am working, I am running, I am right. But in formal Arabic, you don't have it. It doesn't even exist. It's, and, and what you were saying about the, the class distinctions, it's actually used very politically, um, the dialect and formal Arabic in political speeches. Um, Arabic speeches are very much about alliteration. It's not necessarily what you say. It's how you say it. Um, same for Persian as well. They have beautiful ability to rhyme. It's, it's, it's quite incredible. Um, but it's also can be very exclusionary. Because if Nabih Beri is standing up talking in formal Arabic, uh, who's a, a leader, a political leader in Lebanon, um, you know, your average sort of working uh, person may not understand any of that because they weren't taught to read or write at school. So they just learned the language of the street, which is what they spoke in the home, which is Amiya. And there's you know, many, many cases of these, you know, the famous Egyptian one throughout history is Gamal Abdel Nasser, right, who was able to communicate in these really... Uh, powerful speeches that created a vision of the Arab world as one united entity. And he did so by uh, drawing not only on formal Arabic, but also on street Arabic, right? Ah. Arabic of the Sharia. Um, so you have, um, you know, you have these different cl uh, differences between class and social background, but you also have things coming in from other languages as well. And Arabic is uh, similar to a lot of languages where there's English influence. So you have uh, English words become Arabicized. Tomatum. Tomatum, for example. Uh, and, but you also have people using English and especially in uh, some countries, French as well, completely mixed up with the Arabic. Oh, so I suppose that's more for the French, the former French colonies. There's much more uh, French influence, I suppose, like Syria. Oh, my husband, you know, one day he said, uh, have you got your mayo? Uh, and I, I didn't know the French word for swimming costume, but I learned yeah. it from him. Ah. Um, so, because my French is that bad. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, you get a lot of this. And actually, it's interesting I, because, yeah, the tomato in Egypt is tomatum. In Lebanon and Syria, it's banadora. And then I realized, of course, that came from the Italian pomodoro. Yes. So it's just, it's, it's, it's a fascinating melange, these, these dialects, uh, to use a French word. <laughs> um, but also, actually, Nasrallah is the other person who will do that with his speeches, ah. just like, you know, maybe a bit of learning going on there from uh, Nasser. I'm sure there is, yeah. So he definitely marries uh, because he likes to talk to everyone and not just, you know, uh, the, the upper class. So he'll always put in Amir and Fasar and uh, anyway, so we're getting very technical now. Yeah, yeah, we really are. <laughs> I once, actually, more out of curiosity, um, I once heard that, um, this is from an Egyptian person, so perhaps they have a bit of a bias. Um, th they once told me that um, because um, it, Egypt is like the media capital of the Arabic world, um, that the uh, our Egypt dialect is a lot more penetrating than the, um, the other ones. Is there any truth to that? And does that make the language 
easier, perhaps, or the dialect easier. Did James have an easier time? Is what I'm saying. Not <laughs> so, in my view. I think the um, the classic story about uh, Egypt as a media center is a very very old one, right? So the um, the phrase is that uh, definitely for the uh, Arabic newspapers, maybe not the media, was they were um, written in uh, Cairo, published in Beirut. And read in Baghdad. <laughs> um, that's a very old uh, saying. And each capital was very proud of its role, right? So the Egyptians would be like, "Yes, of course, we write it." The Iraqis would be, "Well, yes, but we read it." I mean, you know, this is this means that we are very cultured, right? Etc. So, um, it's a uh, compliment for everyone, then. Exactly. But Egypt, you know, through its film industry, has had a outsized influence. So definitely, um, I also spent uh, some time in Oman, and they would uh, see you know these large dialects. Um, as being far more influential, um, but they are very proud of their own dialects, not only the national ones, the Omani one, but also the regional one. So the Gulf dialect, Khaliji, so Khalij is the Gulf, um, that would also uh, have a strong identity in the region. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, when I was in Yemen, they understood Syrian Arabic because Syria has also, so, well, it's, it's twofold. There's some very famous uh, Syrian musalsalat, as, as James said, which means drama series um we're talking sort of dynasty more than sort of you know some kind of high-end product there but um also a lot of the turkish the Tur turkey it's the second largest producer now of um of television series uh, in the world and they dub in this apparently quite clunky syrian arabic mm -hmm. so uh, Syrian Arabic is now, as James said, the Egyptian idea is is a little bit dated in that Syrian Arabic has also become very prominent, partly because the uh, Turkish, presumably because they've got quite a lot of Syrian people living there, uh, to dub uh, these salsalat. Um, but having said that, every Syrian, every Lebanese, every Arab I've ever met understands Egyptian dialect because they mm. love Egyptian movies and Egyptians are known as being very funny. They are known as the comedy kings of the <laughs> Arab world. I definitely wasn't very funny when I went there. <laughs> Sadly, that's something I should have picked up on. <laughs> Some things you can't help. <laughs> yeah, no hope. Um... So, James, you coming into the, the region, um, you were, it was very much a, a fish out of water, you could say. Egypt was your first destination, is that right? Uh, Oman was the Oman first was place where first. I studied okay. Arabic. Um, uh, I'd been to a few countries in the region beforehand, but that was, that was the first place I studied Arabic. Uh, I went to Egypt afterwards. Um, but uh, yes, and I'd had very much uh, the kind of uh, understanding of the region that you would get from reading the average uh, UK newspaper. Uh, so you see it as a place of threats, right? It's a um, source of terrorism, especially when I was uh, going there. There's a lot of uh, conflict and um, instability and instability exactly so these are all very negative perceptions of the region but they're ones that are really prevalent on the uh, media representations uh, especially in uh, europe and the uk um i don't want to say that they're not there right so there are lots of um uh problems in the region but mm. uh, that is something that is outsized in its representation uh, elsewhere and i'd sort of uh, obviously grown up with that and come to that uh, with the region um, and for me it was very much uh, looking beyond that so 
especially going to the Gulf as well. The Gulf itself has a special place uh, culturally, maybe in the UK more than anywhere else. Right, yes. London and the UK have very strong historic relations with the Gulf, both politically and socially. You, um, the UK, even though it was never a formal colonial power, exerted a lot of political influence throughout its imperial times in that region. The protectorates, yeah. And you used to have people uh, being what was known as uh, residents, right, who would be controlling what was going on, advising the local sheikhs or rulers um, for what they thought should happen. And in the British case, often what they thought should happen was generally what would happen because of its uh, imperial power. So there were these really long exchanges of uh, people between the Gulf and the UK, but um, Europe more widely, and this sort of interest in learning um, the different cultures. Now, for me, uh, this really changed and the almost the stereotype changes when you have the oil wealth. Um, this is something that isn't just unique to uh, Europe, but this representation of um, the Gulf is actually common in other parts of the Arab world as well, including in Egypt, where you have this idea of uh, the Gulf Arab as someone who brings their oil wealth with them wherever they go, um, with the positive and negative uh, implications that comes with. A trickle down, perhaps. Indeed. Uh, and that, uh, again, also not only going on beyond the negative securitized perceptions that I had from a sort of European view of the region, but also going beyond this idea of the Gulf countries as opulent these, these oil countries. Yeah. yeah, that was also important for me as well. Interesting. Hmm. How how did um, Oman fit into that, um, if I may ask? Like, did you see any other um, Gulf states and how do they compare? Yeah, so Oman is a very different to the other Gulf states. Uh, having uh, visited uh, them all, I would say that you know it does have a very distinct identity. Of course, they all have their own distinct uh, national identities. But Oman especially, uh, it has its own uh, form of Islam. Uh, so it would say, you know, there is a religious distinction there as well, um, but also a long uh, history as a country as well. Um, and almost a, almost a country with its own former empire as well, right? So there's a lot of identity uh, bound up in uh, the Omani culture and history. Uh, it's also uh, got a lot of uh, varied geography as well. So it moves from the deserts that people will be uh, most familiar with from, say, tourist depictions of the Gulf, uh, also to you know, large uh, mountain ranges and also greener areas in the south, uh, especially when you get the monsoon area that looks a little bit more uh, like Yemen. Unfortunately, I've never had the chance to visit Yemen, but that's um, what I'm told. So it's a very uh, diverse place. Interesting. A land of contrasts, you might say. Indeed. <laughs> Let's compare this now to Vanessa and your perspective with both the region, um, your experience with the region, and also with um, Syria as well, as compared to yeah, that. I so mean, what is your experience with the region? It's, it's funny because I, I had a vision in my mind because as a child, my father was a civil engineer, and so we lived overseas a lot when I was a child. And Saudi Arabia was one of the places we lived in, uh, near Dahran in Al-Kabar. And um, it was a really, it was quite a stark time for Saudi Arabia then because the Iranian revolution had happened about five or six years ago and Saudi had become a lot more, um, I mean, I was a child, obviously, but uh, it had become a lot more uh, strict and conservative, should we say. So I'm told that the Saudi of the 70s and 60s is quite different to the Saudi of the 80s and and onwards. Uh, so the Saudi uh, uh, I, I lived in was uh, very conservative. Uh, and so I had this 
idea in my mind throughout the rest of my sort of young adulthood and, and until I went to uh, Syria in my late 30s that the, the whole of the Middle East was, yes, dunes, sand dunes, uh, very conservative people all dressed, or women all dressed in black, men dressed in white thalbs. Um, and so Syria came as a real shock in the sense that it was, you know, the Levant, as they call it. There's, you know, people on the streets, uh, not these excessive displays of, of sort of wealth and shining plate glass. And, um, you know, they had markets, um, there were bars, there were cafes. So it was just, it was a much, you know, it, I wouldn't say go so far as to say it could be anywhere in the Mediterranean, but it was definitely um, very different to 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 what the, to how the Gulf, uh, or at least the Saudi that I had experienced as a child. So when you first arrived in your respective countries, what was the most um, difficult element to adjust to, or something that you found um, very stark uh, when you first came? I think for me it was just this sense of not being able to talk to people. Um, Syria at the time, uh, there were very few people who spoke English, so that probably would have been quite different to places like Cairo or um, Oman even maybe, in, in Muscat at least. So in Damascus there was this, and you know, not being able to read anything, so I, I say this in my book, you know, yeah. I'd be looking at minibuses and they'd all be written in Arabic. You're squinting no, your eyes. No phonetic. <laughs> so I'd be sort of my rudimentary, you know, came up, and the bus had gone. Because <laughs> you know? they, they all drove at the, uh, you know, at the speed of uh, uh, like a bullet out of a gun. So, you know, um, so just trying to find my way around and I would literally use the mountain, uh, which was the backdrop, uh, Mount Cassiun. Uh, as my sort of guide when I walked from north to south or east to west, like where's the mountain so that I could find my way back. Because I say this in my book as well, that for some reason, and and, and my husband will admit this, okay, <laughs> people in Syria don't have an awful lot of time for maps. So you will... <laughs> So I would go up to people and accost them with my map, you know, and talk very loudly because we all know that helps. Mm. Um, Classic Anglo <laughs> trick. Help. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I want to go here. And you keep <laughs> speaking louder and louder. And anyway, and people were so kind and so welcoming. And they'd be like, yes, of course. And I'd thrust my little tourist map, which was all written helpfully in Arabic as well, by the uh, somewhat, which I had coaxed out of a recalcitrant official at the tourist bureau. And um, they'd sort of take the map. Ah yes, where do you want to go? And they say where you want to go, and 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 then you'd you'd tell them, and they'd look at the map, and they might turn it upside down and look around, and then they sort of cheerfully toss the map away and say, look, don't worry about that, just go down there or go down there or go there, here and there, and 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 and, and that's where it is. And because it's such an ancient city as well, is that many streets have more than one name, so people will know it as oh this street, the Sharia al you know, Hubbers or something, the Bread Street or something. But on the map, it's something formal and completely different. So it's obviously been renamed in some revolutionary zeal or something. So that was probably the most, just finding my way around and really feeling like a fish out of water because, yeah, I mean, and that, and, you know, I was living proof that total immersion doesn't work. But if you are a talented <laughs> linguist, you know, this is what you want because then you're forced to speak the language. But I really didn't have enough at the beginning to be able to do to grasp, you know, to pick things up quickly enough. So, yeah, I had a lot of uh, quite amusing encounters like that uh, with, with, with maps and, and, and the lack of, uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> what was your most amusing encounter? 
We'll have to come back to that. I have to think about that. <laughs> James. So I guess uh, using public transport is a common experience of travellers everywhere. Um, and it's definitely uh, one of the elements of uh, my experience too, um, especially when you first arrive in a country and you have to figure out how it, how it all works. Um, actually, before I said something about that, I wanted to say a very basic thing. The Gulf is very hot. So that, was, for me, was quite a uh, shock, um, especially if you arrive in midsummer uh, and you know the temperatures are really, really climbing. Mm. Did you not check like the weather <laughs> at all? I checked the weather. I conceptually, I knew uh, how hot it was. Okay, it's very different having that as a feeling, right? Um, especially when it's also humid because you're uh, by the sea as well. So, you know, there's a very different uh, lifestyle and a very different way of. Uh, living and moving that means you don't have to be in the sun very much and so definitely coming from a northern european background where you're very used to uh being trying to be outside in the sunny weather right which is or in the rain reasonably rare in england yes um <laughs> i don't want to quote the mad dogs and englishman saying but it <laughs> is slightly true uh and it's even more so uh in the gulf where it is only the englishman you will find trying to wander around in the midday sun um, so that, that's, that's something uh, that just gives you a sense of how basic the cultural, the, uh, the changes are when you arrive in a new country. Uh, I just wanted to add to Vanessa's uh, point on public transport by saying the um, users and the drivers of the microbuses in Egypt, especially in Cairo and Alexandria, are extremely friendly. Um, but it did take me quite a long while to work out how the system functioned. What do you say in, in Egypt to stop them? Af. Af. Yeah, yeah. Oh, af. We, we would say Amal Maruf. You know, oh. sort of do me a favor. Um, but um, yeah, that again, exact same thing. How do I tell them to stop? And, 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 and yeah, I thought if I used formal Arabic, like stop, like walk off, <laughs> just sounded really. <laughs> but no, no, they have all these little niceties in, in uh, Lebanese army. You know, and that's the other mm. thing about Arabic, by the way. It has an incredible variety of little expressions to congratulate people on minor life uh, achievements, like having your hair cut. Uh, you would say Naiman uh, or coming oh, yeah. out of the shower as well you get the same greeting what are the other ones James um, is it Mni in in Lebanon as well which is a sort of I'm just you know enjoying myself like Mni yeah, yeah. that yeah. means I'm fine how yeah, are so, you yeah, yeah. that's something I've never heard before right oh really yeah that's very that's very new to me yeah the other one they have is um uh, which I think is lovely. If you see someone performing manual labor or doing something, you know, sort of domestic labor, you will say, bless your hands. You uh. say, Yislamo, meaning bless your hands, which I think is a really, really charming, lovely, much nicer than, you know, thanks or, or you know, Jeez. not saying any or not saying anything. You can actually, you know, so people would walk past some street sweeper and they'd say, Yislamo. Okay. Um, so we have two um, seasoned learners of Arabic here. Um, but of course, we have across uh, the Netherlands and indeed Europe, um, we have always new generations of students and scholars who are interested in learning Arabic and, of course, listening to the people of the region. So for those uh, students, those up and coming um, scholars, um, what would be your advice for someone learning Arabic today? What would you advise? Them, where would you advise them to go and which form of Arabic uh, should they learn, first of all? Um, I've thought about that. Um, and I think on balance, if you want to live and work in a specific place, then learn the dialect first, uh, especially if you're a journalist, if you've got journalistic ambitions or whatever, I think just learn Armia, 
uh, and just be just be a little bit thoughtful about where you actually think you're going to be working. So, you know, because, again, Lebanon, Jordan, Syria, Palestine, you can use the same dialect. And again, if you're in Egypt, again, you could be understood by most people. So, you know, think about that. Uh, if you want to read and write, if you're interested in religious study, you're interested in politics or media, then you then you need to learn the formal Arabic. That would be my primary bit of advice. But my other piece of advice is, as I wrote at the end of the book, Arabic is like a mirage. Uh, the closer you think you are, the further you realize you have to go. So just don't be disheartened. <laughs> Keep with it. It's I, I always describe myself as semi-fluent because there is no such thing, I think, as fluency in Arabic unless you're a native speaker. I would... 100% agree. Um, we were talking earlier and we described uh, Fusha as the bridge almost between uh, different dialects. Uh, it's one that's maybe been artificially created, right, especially through, you know, this uh, sort of uh, mass media produ production that is all in Fusha. Um, but it does act as a bridge. Now, the downside of starting with Fusha is that maybe it's a bridge that you can't get off very easily <laughs> at, at any destination. Um, so you're, you're stuck on the bridge. Um, but it's not a bad place to be. Right? So it's so, a nice bridge. <laughs> so if you, if you take that analogy, then maybe if you start um, with modern standards, you start with the rules and the grammar, then you can broaden from there. But I would say definitely it depends really what you want to do. And also everyone learns in different ways, right? Vanessa and I are an excellent example of starting from completely opposite places, um, but still trying to get to the same destination. So just know what works for you. That would be the other thing I'd say. Um, and then finally, be humble, right? It's going to be a long road um, and it never stops, right? As uh, Vanessa said, it's lifelong and uh, you've got to do it for the love of it, for the fun, um, not for any particular uh, exam or, or you know, work obsession or something like that. So, yeah, um, do it because you love it. Mm, absolutely. It's it's hard, it's frustrating, it's head-scratching, and it's wonderful. It's incredible the um, level of knowledge you can uh, acquire from it. I'd like to really yeah, extend the most heartfelt thank you to um, our honourable guest, who's um, given us a lovely book as well, um, Follow the Arabic Road. It's now available uh, for purchase. I'd really recommend it. It's both hilarious um, and um, attention-grabbing. Like, I'm not a very strong reader myself, but I blazed through that in a couple of days. It was a lot of fun. So thank you so much, Vanessa, for joining us. Thank you for reading the book, um, because that's, that's you know, it, you always worry it sort of sits on your coffee table, but thank you very much for reading it, and thanks for having me. Pleasure. And you're welcome anytime. Thank you. And for me, mm. yes, James. Thanks very much. I need my best for her. Shokran to Zealand. Tourist. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> <Keep> that in. <laughs> Certainly will. Okay, everyone, you've just heard part one of episode four of the Leida Security and Global Affairs podcast. Um, here now is part two with uh, special guests um, to discuss a bit of um, what was talked about in part one, but also to talk about um, his experiences with uh, teaching Arabic um, and also some really helpful tips uh, for those who are just getting into the language. Um, we have um, with us today um, Hossam Ahmed. Hello, sir. Nice to, nice, nice to meet you and uh, have you here. Thank you. Hello. And we have returning, of course, uh, James Shires. Just can't get rid of him. Nice to be back, as always. <laughs> Hossam, um, so could you tell us a little bit about yourself and um, what you do here in Leida? Well, as you said, my name is Hossam Ahmad. 
Um, I coordinate the uh, Arabic language learning in here in the University of Leiden. Um, I work for the Leiden Institute for Area Studies. Um, this is where uh, most of the Arabic learning happens. Um, yeah, my interest is in educational technology and uh, second language learning and uh, heritage speakers learning Arabic here in the uh, in the Netherlands. Oh, excellent! So your focus is on um, so it's more on area studies. Yes, uh, mo mostly the linguistic part of it. Oh, I see. I love grammar, and when when you're working with a language like Arabic, you get plenty of grammars to work with. <laughs> um, so uh, this is where working in, in an area um, mm. is more interesting uh, in, in that you look at an area and then you see a lot of areas and then it becomes um, its own microcosm and then um, you get your IR again. Yeah, it's um, it's almost like a fractal, right? The more the closer you look at something, the more that opens up in a way. Yeah. And to get um, extremely philosophical, I think as Wittgenstein said, a grammar is a way of life. So, yes. you know, a language grammar. Game. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I think there's, there's this reticence in a lot of IR scholarship. The, the theories are very generalizing and um, quite sweeping. So there is this tendency to say, oh, you don't need to learn like the, the language of the region or the languages, right? Um, to understand the political dynamics of um, what is occurring. But of course, I, I think that does a massive disservice, um, especially to uh, MENA. Um, so in order to facilitate this more uh, granular approach, what are some of the um, structures or resources available to um, Arabic learners in Leida at the moment? So perhaps as an, in contrast to uh, working in IR, uh, students doing area studies actually um, have the most demand on language learning. They typically ask for more language courses. We, have, we offer quite an array of courses. So in, in the first year uh, of Arabic, our students doing Arabic studies, they do six courses of Arabic um, just in the first year. In the first semester, of, uh, our students doing um, Arabic studies or uh, Middle Eastern studies, um, they meet for eight classroom hours every week to get to a level of the language where they can uh, deal with text and use the language in, uh, to communicate. And they uh, seem to find the, um, quite a big deal of value in, uh, in learning the language. Uh, I think part of it is uh, their approach of trying to understand the perspectives of an Arabic language user, um, an Arabic speaker, um, to the world around them and how they interpret the world. So if you're doing IR, are you, uh, when, when you're looking at, well, huge groups of population, millions and millions yeah. dealing with each other, and you're interested in, in this interaction, at least for our students, what they're interested in is what is it that motives them to act in this way regard in, in, in respect to the uh, other world? And of course, within that group. Um, and to be able to do this, they, um, they need to interact with the people and the uh, and the knowledge and culture they produce. And to do this, they need the language. So in Leiden, we teach Arabic in three uh, programs in uh, the BA uh, Arabic studies, Middle Eastern studies um, for students who choose to focus on Arabic because they can also choose uh, Persian or Hebrew or Turkish. And also in the BA International Studies, um, they take uh, a course sequence on Arabic. Um, and in Leiden University College, um, they um, they take um, Arabic as an elective, but they many students uh, choose to uh, to study Arabic for their elective. I see. Is there a lot of cross pollination between those um, different courses in these Arabic um, classes? 
the way we approach learning Arabic, and I think most languages, it's it's a cognitive universal, is that human humans, the human mind works in a similar way when learning a language. And um, learners of the language go through predetermined steps in, in what they acquire. So especially at the be- uh, at the beginner levels, um, our students do more or less the same things. They learn how to perform the same uh, functions of the language. So they learn how to introduce themselves, uh, how to make requests, uh, how to um, their view of the world is like a child's in a sense, um, and self and immediate surroundings. Um, and then um, and and this is where the most overlap is in um, across all three programs um, after that our as our students become uh, more specialized uh, we tend to vary uh, what they need, how they learn the language and what they uh, focus on um, so for example our Arabic studies focus uh, on uh, literature and, um, and 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 history and uh, manuscripts and, and, and this kind of uh, cultural product and uh, our international studies start focusing on more relevant things to their field. So we start looking at perhaps uh, news, political um, context. Um, I'm hoping for my most advanced class uh, next semester to even look at a position paper. Uh, oh, wow. For, um, for, to analyze and, and perhaps uh, I understand they write something like that in international studies for uh, one of their other courses in English. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a little jealous, so I'll, I'll challenge my students and see <laughs> if they can do it in Arabic as well. Um, I see. It was, it was that a bet? <laughs> yeah. Well, not not really a bet, uh, but it will be uh, it will be pushing my students to the limit because this is a, a really complex product that they they need to understand. So this is where overlap and diversion happens, and of course we've got the different uh, regions of of the Middle East. So. Uh, We've got it's geographically a huge area, yeah. um, and uh, with this, um, and Arabic is a, is a very old, continuously used language, and and with this, um, a lot of uh, dialects um, develop from uh, what we think of as the uh, standard, and and almost uh, get a life of their own, um, and 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 with this, you got. Uh, uh, people who are interested in certain subregions of uh, Middle East and North Africa, and then uh, um, those students uh, will also need to not just learn about the uh, standard, written, formal variety of the language, but they also need to work with people in um, in, in a spoken uh, context. Um, and with this, uh, this comes also with a challenge, uh, especially for our international studies students who are interested in working with uh, NGOs um, or dealing with uh, not just with reports and, um, and and written materials, but dealing with actually people in in development uh, situations um, or living in in the region for a while, and then uh, they want to make sure that they are capable of using Arabic the way Arabs use the language. Um, both the standard variety and the spoken variety. Yeah, it, it's funny you talk about um, the distinction between um, yeah both written formal Arabic and more uh, the spoken variety. Um, there was a lot of uh, anecdotes that were shared between James and Vanessa, um, and also in Vanessa's book of uh, showing up to Damascus speaking primarily. Um, what is the the formal uh, Arabic called? Fasa. 
for ça. Um, and just being laughed at, just um, like, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> what are you saying, right? Why are you speaking like you're in? The, yeah, you're reading from the Quran, like. <laughs> um, and then what was it? The um, the how to stop a bus as well. I think was like very dis distinct between the two. <laughs> yes, as well. Um, but but def definitely the um one of the things that really resonated with me for um the interest of different students was when you were saying about the different programs going into a different. Uh, kind of text or looking for different uh, skills and language skills depending on their interests and that was certainly the case for me and my fellow students uh, even back in the UK I was very much interested in the politics so I would be trying to read news articles and political opinion pieces whereas others would definitely go back into the history um, and sort of read more classical texts uh, now, you know, I, there's many more types of media, so I definitely follow cybersecurity Twitter, but I try and do so uh, both in English with the American Twitter scene, but also the Saudi Twitter scene. And cybersecurity Twitter is very active in Saudi Arabia. So that's mm. really a useful way of me keeping in touch with it. Yeah, learning the lingo as well, I imagine. And when they do that, do they do this in Fosha or in dialect? Generally in dialect. So it's having to um, keep up with some Khaliji as well. Yes. So, um, so what has been um, your experience in teaching Arabic at um, Lahad University so far? What have you found that students uh, consider difficult? Um, what do they find easier about the language, would you say? Um, for one thing, I think as a teacher, we, we feel fortunate that we get the profile of students that we get here in, in Lahad University. So um, I, I compare this to, for example, students learning Arabic um, in North America. Uh, where your typical American student knows one language, which is English, and um, their first exposure to learning a foreign language would be Arabic, which is a very different, um, well, as far as languages are concerned, it's, it's rather different from uh, what they already know. Um, and even like the motivated students will have known some Spanish, where many of the words are already shared, or French uh, for, for high school, and then um, structures are shared and, and many of the words are shared and then they go to Arabic and well they know alcohol but <laughs> come on yeah. uh, then uh, but here in Lyra our students uh, many well they know several languages they have gone through um, the pain and joy of learning one and two and three languages so in that sense um, our students come to us primed and uh, to having just one more language to their inventory. And yeah, it's um, it's great. And, and, and well, depending on your teacher, then when you introduce, um, by you I mean the teacher, introduce something new to your students, even outlandish as it might be, um, you can always res uh, refer to another language that some of your students already know and say, hey, it looks weird, but if you, how many speakers of whatever language in, in this class uh, do we have? And we, we get one or two, uh, especially in, in international studies, we've got, we've got quite an inter a diverse population. And then see, it's not just us. And, and then uh, this kind of connections helps our students build uh, into the language. At least don't think of it as something weird. Yeah. Um, um, Make it more proximate, don't you? You just bring it a little bit closer to their, um, to their home almost. Exactly, and it helps being um, a first language speaker of Dutch um, um, because um, in, in Dutch you've got um, some flexible word order a little. Um, 
it can get confusing at times because this flexible work order, a word order, uh, comes with a difference in meaning that is not in Arabic. So, for example, in Dutch, you could say the verb before the subject. Please excuse me for slaughtering that. <laughs> we're But, both English, so we yeah. So if if you say something like "eat your bananas," eat you banana, mm. and then it's a question. Yeah. But in Arabic, it's not. It's just one optional way of saying um, you eat bananas. Mm. Um, so in Arabic, while uh, in standard Arabic, while you can say you eat bananas and it's a good sentence, it's also okay to say eat you bananas and it's also a good sentence. Right, and they carry the exact same meaning. Yes. Ah, so there's a bit of creativity, but in terms of... Um, Difference in meaning, it's just completely well, up to the speaker. It's flexibility in word order. And then, um, well, I, I ask my Dutch le, uh, students to uh, unlearn that this comes with a question. <laughs> um, but then um, when we start, uh, Arabic is a case language, so we have nominative markers and accusative markers and stuff like that. Oh, yes, I've heard all about these cases. <laughs> <laughs> and then... If your uh, students come for, have done at least a little bit of German in school, in high school, then it's not such, um, it's easier, it, our job is easier introducing it. Um, I remember, for example, uh, um, so American students would need maybe a month to at least uh, even get familiar with the system. Um, Um, last year, uh, one of my teaching assistants called and said, hey, uh, what do you mean teach this in one session, in one hour? And I said, well, try it and it will work. Mm. So there is this advantage of a diverse and multilingual student population that we have in, in LIDA. Oh, that's fantastic. It's really great that it um, works in our favor. And that the, um, the word order is also um, comes more naturally to perhaps uh, Dutch speakers or Germanic speakers than perhaps an English speaker. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> It's no, okay. no, because even our English speaker students, um, they have been exposed to other languages. Right. Yeah, um, there's a reason why they're here. Yeah, yeah. so they, um, they have this flexibly robust mind and attitude for learning the language. I'm, I must say I'm really proud of our students. Would you say there's um, any uh, similarities in terms of how... Dutch speakers uh, are able to produce different Arabic sounds or letters because definitely in the UK they would say these particular letters are going to be really hard for you. So just Ein, you know, something that is outside your normal spoken but the th sound is much easier for English speakers who do that a lot. Would you say there's similar uh, pros and cons in the Dutch language? Well, th this is a very interesting interaction between Dutch, other languages that students already know, and Arabic. So um, while uh, a monolingual English speaker will find it very hard to produce things like kha uh, and na, of course, uh, which is, by the way, um, kind of dying out of Arabic. Um, it's, it's, uh, well, it will take a couple hundred years. So if you're a student <laughs> listening to this, you still need to learn your ah. <laughs> But uh, that's, that's a good advice. <laughs> yeah. um, but then um, for students in in, in Dutch, um, well, they they know the ra and, and the ga and the ra. Um, so most of the individual sounds are easy. Well, they're already part of their um, mental inventory. 
But then, depending on where in the Netherlands or Belgium you come from, you get some confusion between R and R. Ah. So if you, or, or, or if you speak in French as well. So if you say parler and in your language, there is no distinction between R, which I will uh, kind of emphasize here, R, <laughs> and the French or some parts of the Netherlands where you get the R in the, instead. Mm. Um, now, you can find yourself in, in some embarrassing situations where the word for that, that uses one of the variety, one of the two uh, letters and sounds um, is replaced because, uh, because of your accent. Mm, they get mixed uh, up there, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so, fascinating. Uh, yeah. How does the teaching approach differ from uh, an American university as compared to Leida? or other universities in, in Europe? I have minute history lesson here. Um, before 9-11, um, learning Arabic was mostly for cultural and historical and religious uh, purposes. And um, in that context, um, students never needed to learn to speak Arabic. All, all they had to do is learn how to look at a manuscript, a book on religion, um, and, and this is uh, on both sides of the Atlantic. If you want to learn Arabic, you learn Arabic the way you learn Latin. Uh, you look, you, you learn the grammar of um, Arabic. You find some old books. You start looking at them. And um, if you want to become a professor, you learn how to translate them into and, and write a commentary on these. And then uh, Bin Laden came. And uh, with this, um, younger generations of people started thinking, so Arabic comes with these things, but it also comes with people. And perhaps we should learn more about those people, what they do and, and, and how they do whatever it is they do in, in their daily life. And, and oh, and pe with people comes culture. And let's learn more about this. Um, and of course, um, well, a multi-year war on from a huge economy poured a few million, well, several several tens of mil millions of, of dollars into um, learning the language um, with scholarships and all these things. And then all of a sudden, people started thinking about Arabic as a living language. And as a living language, you can't learn Arabic the way you learn Latin anymore. Um, because you need to do things with the language. You are going to war and you're going to put people who are dealing with uh, with humans in, in, in the target country, you need to communicate with them. Um, and uh, if you are studying uh, what's going on so that it never happens again um, in, in a modern time, you learn you need to learn about the things that James is, is doing now. And, and this isn't in, just in uh, some, uh, some written text. It's, it comes with people. So in the early and mid-2000s, um, there has been a shift of the view of many of the students um, and institutions, to tell you the truth, from looking at Arabic as a dead language, um, purely interesting as for its uh, academic value, to a living language, so we start looking at learning Arabic as um, the as being the same as learning, uh, well, not to to as many people, but to uh, as people who are learning Spanish or French. As soon as you think about Arabic as a modern language, um, 
comes with it a whole culture of already established norms and standards. Uh, we start thinking about things like proficiency in using the language rather than ability to translate it. Mm. Um, so, distinct. yeah, yeah, um, because the um, the Arab world is um, is Europe's nearest neighbor. There's been a very long tradition in, in studying um, Arabic academically, and, and this is something I think um, in, in in Europe, certainly in Leiden. Um, something we treasure and keep and we want to maintain. Honestly, because if we don't do it here in Leiden, nobody in the Netherlands will do it. Um, and, and, and then um, our understanding of where you come from um, will, will go away. And Arabs have this saying, he who has no old has no new. But also the trend has been coming uh, very strongly, especially in the United States, because interest in Arabic before was not as strong in um, in many universities. Um, they could very quickly trans, um, transform from a purely uh, grammar and translation approach into a more communication-based approach. Um, so they start learning to read and to write, good, but also to speak and to listen and to uh, um, to look at uh, media and films. I think in some other places in Europe, they, they still like to stick to the uh, traditional approaches mm. in learning and, and targeting the kind of students who are only in, uh, interested in... Uh, linguistics. Um, uh, not just linguistics, but the, the, the uh, traditional cultural uh, heritage of, the, of uh, Arabic. Um, but here in Leiden, because, uh, first because we're, uh, we're a well-established program and we have um, the diverse interests of our students, uh, we get to do both. Um, so if you are an international studies student, um, you get to do more um, towards the um, proficiency-geared, um, use-based, usage-based. Um, well, if you take conversation to also mean uh, interacting with um, written and, and, and yes. modern products, yes, not sorry. just spoken. Yeah. Not just historical um, old manuscripts, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. More um, focus on modern... Oh, yes, and in interaction, in interaction is, is more uh, what I'm looking for. But if you're doing um, just Arabic studies and uh, you want to focus on the, the heritage, you, you also can do that. So we're, uh, uh, we're lucky to situate ourselves actually in, in the middle of, of this spectrum. Um, there is a little bit for everything. Mm. Of course, this comes at a price, but uh, <laughs> well, so far we're happy to, um, to, to, take, uh, to address that. Good trade-off so far. Yes. Yeah, that's great. What kind of um, experiences or anecdotes uh, have students shared with you about their time in uh, Cairo or Rabat well, when they've gone abroad? <laughs> so uh, I've got this student. Uh, this student, she, uh, first day out of the airport, and then she would hail a taxi, get in there, and she would ask in formal Arabic, I shall go to the this address uh, if you will please honorable <laughs> sire <laughs> and the taxi driver would turn around look at her and say a phrase uh, which is typically said at the end of a Quranic verse <laughs> it's a little mean of the cab driver, but it's also very confusing to him for somebody to speak to him in a language he typically hears at a mosque sermon. Mm. Or um, if he's watching TV, maybe at the most formal speech by the president. Mm. Not even an, a regular speech by the president, but maybe the president addressing the parliament. Yeah. 
um and 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 yeah this was his um reaction um for and well she lived with it for a few days until she could <laughs> she could get uh, her um mixing between uh, fosha and and the dialect correctly um and then um well this this was uh, a long time ago no um may i ask was this in cairo or about this was in cairo ah yes of course, <laughs> <laughs> of course. Uh, in other contexts people really um are impressed that somebody can use the high variety of the language and say oh great you're so well educated because only people who have finished university can talk like this um but certainly it's uh, on on the more uh, transactional level uh, it's it's not it didn't help much but now we prepare our students before they go they uh, they take one course um, right, right the semester before they go to Cairo or Rabat where they get through how to deal with your first uh, couple of weeks in uh, in country it's good yeah so a lot yeah. of lessons learned from that particular anecdote then <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah i was going to say like i've i've also heard from james that um oh and vanessa that um the egyptians are considered very funny um in the um arabic speaking world as well got a very nice uh, sense of humor allegedly they like to oh, well, we're talking about 100 million people of here. course yeah, <laughs> yeah 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 no, you can't just generalize yeah, yeah but, but the yeah um, the kind of self deprecating humor so you you find a lot of, a lot about jokes uh, a lot of jokes about self and, <laughs> and community uh, yeah uh, so it reminded me of the the th sound as well cuz i definitely had that mocked when i went to cairo they said you know what you want the <laughs> i mean you know only people who are really sort of trying to pronounce the words really exquisitely would actually use that. Right. Um, so definitely, yeah, whenever I ask for anything, I ask for four of them rather than three. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a good hint. <laughs> or just use ta. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or just use ta, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and until you're in trouble because you should be using this. Of course, yeah. <laughs> no, and then they say, oh, look at our madrasa. Uh, okay, fine. <laughs> yeah, it's the language of the school. I was... Yeah, that's, that's, that's what they call it. Yeah. Would you like um, to talk a bit more about um, um, perhaps Rabat as well, and perhaps the um, the distinctions between um, like Moroccan um, dialect as opposed to um, yeah, Egyptian or um, or just formal as well? As I said, in in, um, in our uh, Middle Eastern Studies program, our students are required to spend a semester in uh, either Cairo or Rabat. Um, international studies students get to choose uh, if they if they if they want to do that, and uh, when they go there, they take courses on language and culture uh, on on the dialects, of course. While we keep saying it is one language, mm. um, it's more like an umbrella, right? No, it, it is one language. Mm. Um, but if you think about English, uh, perhaps uh, more so in England. Uh, or as a global language, uh, you travel for 50 miles in the, in the UK and, well, depending mm. on how posh you are, maybe you can't understand the, the, the dialect in yep. the other place. Yeah, very true. Uh, and you get uh, a speaker of Nigerian English and a speaker yep. of New Zealand English, um, and then they are pretty... Uh, distinct. Distinct. To say the least, yeah. Um, and you, you, you've got a similar situation, but we, we still call it one English, right? Of course, um, yeah. And in that sense, we still call it one Arabic. Um, but with the expansion and the history of uh, independent development of dialects, you get something like um, standard Arabic, 
which um, I don't know how you react to this, but oh, um, there are different standard Arabics across the Middle East. Oh, so as the, um, a newspaper printed in uh, Saudi Arabia yeah. and a newspaper printed in uh, Morocco, um, there are algorithms now that can tell you they're so distinct that you, you see them and you know this isn't printed ah. here. Um, but they do that through um, sort of a large-scale study, right? You can look at the word. You say algorithms would do that, so you'd have to word process all these newspapers. Yeah, that's fascinating. Well, if you give it to a speaker, they, yeah. he 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 knows immediately. Hey, this is not Egyptian. This yeah. is probably from um, Syria. Um, but then, if you're looking at a half million tweets to um, look at um, perhaps sentiment analysis on a certain topic, mm. and then you want to um, to classify it further. And, and they do they have do problems that as well. with that. Wow, yeah. fascinating! That's really um, interesting. Yeah, so you've got you've got your standard Arabic, which has um, the closest grammar to what we think of as classical Arabic, mm-hmm. uh, pre-modern Arabic, um, and then you've got some variations in in large groups of languages. You've got Moroccan Arabic, or what we call Maghrebi Arabic, and this is mostly spoken in Morocco, Tunisia, with, with variation, of course, mm-hmm. um, Algeria, the west of Libya. Um, you've got the Eastern Arabic, which is spoken in um, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Palestine, um, um, some uh, some part, most of Iraq. Um, you've got Gulf Arabic, um, well, in, in the Arabian Peninsula, parts of Iraq um, and parts of Syria. Um, and then Egyptian Arabic, spoken in Egypt, um, some parts of Sudan, some parts of Libya. And then they are distinct. They are so distinct, in, even in grammar. So uh, they are mutually comprehensible for mm. a lot of reasons, um, but their grammars can even be sometimes different. So you get something like Egyptian Arabic, you form a question, a WH question, who, what, where, when, and you make the question in a similar way to Chinese. Oh, okay. So you ask a question, you like to eat what? Mm. And it's not an exclamation, it's, it's a question. Mm. And then... You, any other Arabic mm. will ask will ask the question do, do the same way as in uh, English. Right. What do you like to eat? You want to eat. Oh. And then um, um, you've got standard Arabic where you've got the flexible uh, word order that that we talked about a few minutes ago. But then all the dialects decided that this is too much work. <laughs> Why have two choices and worry about case and nominative and accusative and and all the things that all um, students don't like? <laughs> Let's drop the case and drop the, the the flexible word order. This way, we have just one way to say a sentence and live happily. Yeah. Um, and they they went for a word order that looks like English. I see. Um, well, not not because it looks like English, no. but it's um, but so we want to the subject verb and object um, at least for the main sentence of uh, the um, your main sentence. So grammars are um, a little different. We want our students to know about them. They want to know about them, especially if they are reading and writing. Pronunciation is the most uh, challenging, I would say, for our students, and it's mostly because you, if you're dealing with somebody, you have a split second to figure out what they're saying. And unlike a book where you can go back and forth in a sentence or even in a chapter and figure out what's going on, if, um, and, and the slightest, the, the brain is, is, is set up such that even the slightest variation in pronunciation rings a bell um, and, and, um, and can get confusing. Uh, 
So um, we focus um, mostly in, in, the, in the programs where we teach both the dialect and uh, standard side by side. We focus on Egyptian Arabic, um, mostly because I like Egyptian Arabic, <laughs> uh, but also because it's the James most... very pleased to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> it's also cool. Yeah. And um, because um, of um, throughout most of um, the 20th century, um, Egypt has been producing most of the um, uh, modern pop culture for the Middle East. Um, so um, a colleague uh, mentioned that um, for the Arab Egyptian Arabic for Arabic is like American English for English. Um, Egypt being where Hollywood for Arabic is for most of last century. Um, so we teach this and we think that there is um, a reasonable possibility that our students can get by using Egyptian Arabic in, um, in most spoken discourse. Um, but then in pronunciation, you get things that can uh, throw our... Um, well, honestly, even first language speakers of Arabic, um, they can get thrown off very easily with, um, with the way pronunciation takes place, uh, with either with um, Eastern Arabic or with uh, Moroccan Arabic. Um, so, for example, in Moroccan Arabic, in Maghribi, most of the Moroccan dialects, uh, of the uh, Western dialects, uh, we, they uh, do not mind having, actually they prefer to have three consonants in a row at the beginning of the word without any vowels in the middle. So like three diphthongs almost. Uh, three consonants. So right. think all their words being pronounced as the first part as street. Oh, yes, of course. Okay. Tbilisi as well. Yeah. Tbilisi, <laughs> yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, in standard Arabic, classical Arabic, and all other Arabics, it's um, it's a no-no situation. You cannot have even two consonants one after the other at the beginning of a word. So uh, um, if you want to say book, which is kitab, notice that it's ke, e, ta, a, and then the b, mm. almost like Japanese. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, you cannot have uh, two consonants together. Yeah. Yes. It's just in t, yeah. Um, I, I tease my students about this and saying, and in, 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 in this is why it's most of the songs are in Egyptian Arabic. You got so many vowels that you can sing. <laughs> you can really, yeah, open your voice up, yeah, your lungs, and, yeah. and you can change your tone with it. So I'm not going to sing on microphone. But this is <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> I won't edit that out. <laughs> but then you get in, in Moroccan Arabic instead of kitab, you get ktab. Oh, oh, even well, the a is long, so it cannot really go away. Mm. You get something like. Muhtaram, you get mm. Yeah, uh, and 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 this can be very confusing for somebody who is not familiar with the with with this variety of the language, first language speaker or second language learner, and then um, yeah, different repair when you when you're forced to have two consonants, uh, you have to do something about it in uh, in in the other dialects, but in in Moroccan Arabic they are. Just happy as a clown, <laughs> um, and 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 this is something um, we tend to uh, tell our students about uh, and make them aware of. And then, if they are not really listening, because some students are not really listening all the time, <laughs> they find out for, for themselves. They learn that horrible lesson. <laughs> yeah, but, but then um, with uh, 
with YouTube and and um, the the opening of 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 diverse um, production and uh, on on the internet, um, people are more exposed to all the varieties of Arabic, and then um, it becomes easier and easier for them to adapt these. Because at the end of the day, these are not big things; they just have a big effect. And as soon as you take care of them, um, things things are smoothed out. Um, so I would say most of our students take a few weeks and then uh, they acclimate and they acquire what they need to for um, for learning what they are in country to learn. Maybe I could just ask something about uh, digital technologies because you mentioned that having YouTube and uh, you know, social media really uh, changes people's exposure to different kinds of Arabic. Have digital technologies really changed the way that you teach Arabic as well? I think it's a good question. Well, for one thing, most of the materials we could create for our students in, in the older days, we, we would have to either go there and turn on um, TV and, and record for hours and hours and start fishing mm-hmm. or c- ask our colleagues to help us create them themselves. Yeah. Basically get a video camera and act out a script, which is artificial. We still do that, but in much, much rarer cases. Okay. Uh, now we, because of all these available uh, resources and technologies, mm. we spend the time finding real language, real authentic uh, materials that we can show our students um, and look at together. Yeah. Also, our students themselves do not have to rely on the teacher to take charge of their own learning. Mm. Um, there is only so much we can offer our students in, in a language so diverse as Arabic, right? Yeah. So we teach one dialect, but there is a whole sea of cultures out there. Mm. Uh, one of the things that now I can comfortably do is ask my students to go online and, for example, um, create a manual for their colleagues who will go on study abroad next year with how to eat healthy when they are there. Mm. which restaurants they can go to, uh, what they can do. And these are things they can find with technology today. Um, they can uh, look for themselves for the kind of pop culture that uh, somebody my age wouldn't much care much to learn about. And then they can tell us about it. I get to learn about it rather than go and explore all of these things. Um, yeah, and also, keep you in touch, right? <laughs> yeah, and, and and with the social media, you get to mm. see. Uh, and this is for the more uh, geeky kind of uh, attitude towards language. You you get to look at uh, social media posts and 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 see how um, dialects and and standard interact together, mm. and who says what, how, in what context, um, which which is an an interesting area of research. It's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. So really, yeah, it really opens up. Um, different worlds and opportunities for, quite, for quite. students. Yeah. And then you don't have to keep watching TikToks to see what your students are talking about. You just be like, yeah, well, what's going on in social media nowadays? Yeah. <laughs> you guys go to TikTok and yeah. see what's going on and tell me about it because <laughs> I, I, I don't want to. I don't yeah. want to get on that. Yeah. <laughs> or even better, pr- produce your own Arabic TikTok and I will tell mm. all the Arabs out there about it. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah okay. a bit of marketing as well. <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic, yes. All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the second part of um, this episode of the Leider Security and Global Affairs podcast. Um, I would like to thank very much um, our special guest, uh, Hossam Ahmed, for being with us today. Thank you.
Thank you. Um, where can people find you on the internet, by the way? Would you like anything promoted? Go to Middle Eastern Studies in, in, at the University of Leiden and you'll find um, all sorts of very interesting things to learn about. Excellent. Thank you. Yes. And uh, thanks again, James, for uh, being with us for the second part. Thanks very much. Have a great day, everyone. Special thanks again to Vanessa Newby, whose new book, Follow the Arabic Road, is available for purchase on Amazon. Check it out if you would like an independent Arabic learner's perspective on learning Arabic in the Middle East.